Welcome to Tripperhead's Talk and Tea podcast, an ad hoc series of podcasts with the newsmakers of Hong Kong. Hong Kong's most fascinating lawyer. Aaron Bush chats with Tim Owen, King's Counsel. Welcome to this episode of Tripperhead's Talk and Tea with me, Aaron Bush. Every now and again, I'm going to chat with those in the news here in Hong Kong and not only talk about the issues of today, but delve into the backstories, both about the topic at hand and my guest. Our discussions will be over a cup of tea or coffee at a location of the guest choosing. Today, we are at the Continental in the Upper House in Admiralty, and I chat with a man who has become Hong Kong's most renowned lawyer at the moment. Everyone in the Hong Kong news business knows his name and the man he was set to represent. Here's Tim Owen, King's Counsel. Tim, welcome. Thank you, Aaron. Very nice to be here. Uh, just first correction, the Continental is not in the Upper House. It's a separate restaurant. Oh, there we go. Near the Upper House. Oh, my goodness. Started well. Anyway. It's not going to be the last direction no, we have no, today. I am a lawyer. You are? A... <laughs> well, we're going to start with that, actually. First things first. You'll rapidly find out in this podcast that I know next to nothing about the legal profession. Well, that's good. I know there are people called lawyers, barristers, solicitors, and you have King's Counsel attached to the end of your name. Where do you fit into that? What is your position? Okay, very briefly, uh, England and Hong Kong uh, have a divided profession. So we're all lawyers, but there are two types of lawyer. Uh, uh, in the English common law system and in Hong Kong, namely barristers and solicitors. And within barristers, there are divisions between junior barristers and King's Council in, in England or senior council in Hong Kong. Uh, you remain a junior barrister unless until you become a King's Council or a senior council. And it's a bit like doctors and consultants. So I've got it in my head. You in the UK, King's Council, Ronnie Tong. In Hong Kong, senior counsel. Correct. They are on the same level. Exactly. Right. I think I've got all that under control. And it's, it's, it's meant to be a mark of excellence, mm. i.e. you have been chosen uh, to uh, get the badge of King's Council or senior counsel on the basis you're supposed to be good at your job. And you just got a, a, a name change because uh, we went from Queen's Council to King's Council. Correct. Yeah. On the passing of the Queen. Uh, as, as soon as she drew her last breath, apparently we were converted automatically into King's Council. Now, I've been pre-warned this podcast could well be 90% no comment, but I will battle on anyway. You were most recently in the news as former Apple Daily owner Jimmy Lies Council. What can you tell me about that? I can't really tell you anything because uh, the the obviously the fact that I was instructed to defend Mr. Lai at his trial, which was due to begin last year, but which has now been adjourned to later this year in September, I was instructed uh, by a local Hong Kong solicitor to lead the defence team and was admitted to defend Mr. Lai um, by the courts here in Hong Kong, only then for the chief executive to refer the question of my admission to the... Um, the Standing Committee of the National People's Congress, etc. And anyway, the long and the short of it is there is now a challenge going on before the Hong Kong courts in relation to the decision to effectively refuse me a work permit to defend Mr. Lai. And I can't really say more than that. 
So it's July 12th, where we are sitting outside here at the Continental, just so we know where we are on the scale of things. The podcast will be up forever, maybe. Um, so at the moment, you're still in the challenge process of that, so you can't talk about it. Uh, exactly. So there is a challenge going on uh, in relation to my admission uh, against the background of a decision by the Hong Kong government, in effect, to refuse me permission to defend Mr. Lai, but that's being challenged. So that's why I can't really talk about it. Should we order? Yes. On that why don't we order? Tripper Heads talking to you with Aaron Bush and Tim Owen. Tim, now you are regular here at the Continental. I've never been, obviously, tatted up Aussie Bogan. So I'm leaving the choices of the menu to you. Well, yeah, I am a regular here. Um, I also come here after court. Uh, quite a lot of lawyers do because it's close to the high court. Well, what do you suggest? Um, well, I think I'm going to have, I'm going to save you some money on the trip ahead uh, expenses account. I bought the flash new credit card today. By not going. Never been used. I'm going for the cheapo lunch set. Is it? Other than the uh, a la carte. Right out. So I'm going to have tomato salad, mozzarella, basil, pickled onions, and then coffee, pork belly, with pea and mint crushed potatoes, and buttered cabbage. Well, being Australian, maybe I'll have the barramundi. Fair enough. Okay. And the uh, producer's here in the corner as well. We need to see what she wants to uh, order, taking photos and making sure we uh, stay inside our red lines, perhaps. Or perhaps Jay can perhaps Jay can go a la carte and then boost the expenses. But... Can we order? Okay. Someone's going to come. Someone's going to come and order. That Very was good. just the man delivering. Uh, what have we got there, producer? An ice latte. Ice. How very responsible. We, on the other hand, are drinking wine. Now, we'll uh, crack on with the next question, which ties into what yes. we just talked about. The yeah. Hong Kong Department of Justice and the Hong Kong government actually had Beijing adjust the rules governing national security law trials with overseas lawyers like yourself in all reality barred from representing clients. First time you've ever had a government rewrite the laws against you? <laughs> uh, yes. No, no comment. There we so go. Our first no comment today. Yes. Let's get into a bit of backstory while we wait for the order. The other day you were telling me you are actually Welsh. Correct. From the Old Bailey accent, I erroneously thought you were English. Did you grow up in Wales? Yes. Uh, yes and no. I was actually born in England, but only lived there quite briefly before moving. Ah, before we carry on with my answer, our orders are being taken by, okay. by our waiter. It's becoming a, uh, a half hard and hitting podcast, half food podcast yes. here. Jade, do you want to order first? Producer, just getting uh, her order done. She's not mic'd up. Yeah. Tim, you can go next. I'm going to have the tomato salad and the coffee pork belly. Thanks. Yes, thank you. And I will also have the tomato salad. And being Australian, I will have the barramundi. Perfect. Thank you. Is Barramundi a town in Australia? Tim, for all your legal knowledge, you say that a fish is named after a town. It sounds like it could be a town. Well, I was telling you how I did live in Kananara, where you do catch Barramundi. Okay. But it's just an Aboriginal word for uh, the type of fish. Got it. Um, okay. So, anyway, sorry, back to back to your question. You asked me whether yes, I was born in, in Wales. Yeah, the answer is yes and no. I mean, I, I was born in England, moved when I was quite young to Wales. My father was a teacher in an international school in South Wales called Atlantic College, United World College of the Atlantic. Um, and so we lived 
for most of the 60s there in Wales. And What was the town for? Uh, the, the, well, the city. We lived in a 12th century castle called St. Donat's Castle, which is on the coast of South Wales, near a town called Santa Major. But if my parents are Welsh, well, my father's from West Wales, my mother's from Swansea, both Welsh-speaking. So I had all, you know, all my relatives, Welsh, Welsh speakers. So I had a very Welsh uh, upbringing, and, and I, I do feel Welsh. If I haven't asked, are you English, I would always say, no, I'm Welsh. You did. You said that to yep. me. It is all I know about Wales and the Welsh. They like rugby. Yes. Cardiff is a city in Wales. Correct. And it's not very big. Well, it's it's yeah, it's not very big compared to London, Birmingham, Manchester, but you know it's the capital I, city of Wales. I did some. I did some. I mean, the 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 country of Wales isn't very. It's not very big. No, it's got a population of about I don't know three or four million people. It's pretty unpopulated. Lots of spaces. I did some research. Some useless trip ahead trivia. Yeah. I grew up in Western Australia, as I told yes. previously, yeah. not here on the podcast. And I've just got to find my facts here. Here we go. You can fit. 121.6 whales into Western Australia. Yes, that doesn't surprise me. Mm. Uh, to, to you, it's quite large and spacious. To me, it's uh, sort of it's backyard. A, a, large par- a large park. Exactly. It's go across to Wales to play a game of cricket with your <laughs> mates and then come home again. Yeah. Tripper heads talk and tea. For those who have lived in Hong Kong for a while, they may also remember you from another marquee trial, Rory Jutting, who yes. you represented. What was that case all about? Well, as as many people may know, um, Mr. Jutting was an English uh, banker. He worked for Merrill Lynch Bank of America. And in 2014, I think it was, he was arrested uh, on the basis of having uh, murdered two women, two uh, sex workers who he had effectively kidnapped and then murdered in the most uh, dreadful circumstances in his flat in um, in Wan Chai. So he was charged with murder and I was instructed to defend him in 2016, quite late in the day. The trial began, I think, in October 2016. And so I was instructed to defend him and his defence to the murder charge was the uh, partial defence of diminished responsibility, which effectively presents the jury with an alternative to convicting a person of murder on the basis that at the time they did the acts, because there was never any doubt that he had killed both these women, but at the time he killed them, his, his responsibility was diminished by reason of a uh, substantial impairment of his responsibility. And there was lots of psychiatric evidence about his state of mind at the time of the killings. And so that was the basis of the defense. But it was an extremely uh, distressing, awful case in terms of of, of, of the evidence of what had happened to these poor women. I did do some research, watch some videos from back. We, I lived in Hong Kong back through then. I yep. remember it, but I wanted to go back and just jog my memory. And I was watching a CNN report from back then. And they actually said that the, the jurors at the time were instructed and told that it's going to be a horrific case. Yeah. And if you can't handle that, say so now. I mean, if that, that's, that's actually a very standard a warning to be given to a jury panel before you swear a jury in a trial that will involve them necessarily having to view graphic, disturbing evidence. They need to have a warning because they may well have a good reason 
based on you know past experience you know psychiatric state and so on as to why having to sit and watch that will be extremely harmful to them so yes they were given a very clear warning that sitting on the trial would be um would require them to look at that because it was necessary to see all of that evidence because he had recorded uh, effectively uh, much of the brutality leading up to the uh, killings and so they had to look at that in order to assess his state of mind. So we're talking about the Rarik Jutting trial and the producer is sitting next to us agog with this story because it's one of the big true crime stories around the world, not just Hong Kong. Yeah. And and you were there for the three weeks. What else can you tell us about the trial? I know that it's what needs to be in the public domain about that trial. You were there. Well, obviously, it, people ask, the usual question that people ask barristers uh, is, how can you defend someone who you know is guilty? To which the answer is, well, if someone tells you they're guilty, you don't defend them. That's a professional conduct rule. Um, and in, in, the, in the case of Rurik judging, as I said, the, there was no question that he'd done the deed. He had killed both these women. So that wasn't an issue. The, the issue was what was his state of mind when he did what he did. And so the answer to the question, how can you defend someone like Rurik judging is, well, firstly, I believe in the cab rank rule. In other words, the rule of professional conduct in the Bar of England and Wales, which says that uh, you are effectively a taxi waiting to be flagged down and uh, someone flags you down and then you, you take them on. And um, although there are lots of examples of that rule not being observed, I actually strongly believe in it. Uh, and I believe in it on the basis that... Um, it means that people don't think when you take on a case that you're doing it because you agree with them, because that's obviously absurd. You're defending a person because that's your job. You're a defence lawyer. But in the case of Rurik Jutty, it was a, a very sort of, in one sense, simple situation. Here's a person who had done uh, the, he killed both these women, but the question was why and in what circumstances had he done it? And, you know, there was plenty of medical evidence, both from the defence side and from the prosecution about his state of mind, which supported a defence of diminished responsibility. In other words, that at the time he did what he did, his, his responsibility for his actions was substantially impaired by a combination of different disorders. What was the ultimate jury verdict? The jury verdict was a unanimous verdict of guilty of murder. You mentioned there that you are a defence lawyer and you followed the rules that you defend somebody if asked. And if they say they're guilty, then you won't defend them. But apart from that, you're all in. I also prosecute. If I, I've, I've that was my question. Prosecution. No, no, I, I've, I've, I'm not often approached to prosecute. But if I'm asked to prosecute, um, I, I, I will do. And I, I, uh, there was, for example, there was a period where Keir Starmer, now leader of the Labour Party, when Keir was the director of public prosecutions, he briefed me quite a lot to prosecute uh, cases, in particular cases to do with human trafficking. And so, um, because he was concerned that the policy adopted in the past about prosecuting victims of human trafficking was wrong, and he wanted a prosecutor with experience of human rights law to do those cases. So I, I, I did. I prosecuted those cases. Can you prosecute in Hong Kong as an overseas lawyer? Yeah, yes, I have. I've been briefed by the DPP in Hong Kong on on two cases since 2014. Uh, I mean, obviously. To, to be admitted 
as a British barrister to prosecute or defend or any do any case in Hong Kong, you've got to go through the special admission process. But uh, that's to appear in court. But I, I've been briefed to do advisory work for the DPP in Hong Kong on, on a few occasions, yes. Do you feel like that's ever going to happen again? No. You're listening to Tripper Heads Talking Tea with Aaron Bush. Now, we were just talking about your the big marquee trial in 2016 of Jutting. And while you were at that case, you met your current wife who was reporting on it. Now, we can't mention who that is because she has a non-disclosure agreement with her company. It's actually why she's not here today. I did invite her as well. But you're quite the power couple. How do you juggle the relationship with you both having such high-profile statuses? Is it difficult? No, it's not difficult at all. Um, and, uh, I mean, the only difficult thing is that obviously she's based in Hong Kong and, and I'm generally based in, in the UK, although I spent a lot of time in the last seven years since I met her at the Rurik Chushing trial, uh, I've spent a lot of time in Hong Kong, either visiting her or working here. Um, but yes, it's, 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 um, that's the thing that's difficult, but, but, you know, the nature of our work in itself isn't a problem. Now, before Beijing changed the rules on foreign lawyers, and you were still, well, you still are in limbo, lies lawyer, how was the atmosphere in Hong Kong here for you both uh, as a couple? Were the authorities keeping tabs on you or? No comment. It's our second no comment of the day. Right. More legal questions. Thank how you. do you personally find Hong Kong to work in now in the new era of NSL? Well, Obviously, my experience of, of of doing the NSL is only in the Jimmy Lai case, and you know that experience is 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 what it is, and everyone's aware of that because of all of the reporting. But if you're not involved in a, a case involving the national security law, you know life goes on very much uh, as it did before. And for example, I'm currently here involved in a fraud trial, um, uh, and that case is 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 proceeding, as I say, uh, 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 as like, like any of the other cases I've done in the last 10 years in Hong Kong. And on that point, in the news, we, we read about your name attached to the lie NSL case, and that's it. And so there's a lot of news about, oh, you can't operate as a lawyer in Hong Kong anymore. And not just you, I mean overseas. Yep. You're saying it's just business as usual? Oh, yeah. Uh, the, 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 the change is solely in relation to the national security law cases and, and, and linked cases, which raise questions of national security. And effectively, uh, what's being suggested is that absent exceptional circumstances, an overseas lawyer will not be given special admission to come and defend in uh, a national security law case. And, and it is a special system we have here in Hong Kong. Most places on the planet don't allow overseas lawyers right. to practice at all, right? Oh, no, that's absolutely right. Um, they're, um, oh, look, our main course is just arriving, which look pretty good, actually, I have to say. Um, no, that's true. Uh, Hong Kong, insofar as it allows me or other overseas barristers, British barristers, to come and practice here, it, it, that, that, that's unusual. A Hong Kong barrister can't just get special admission to do a case in, in, in the UK. They will have to be called to the bar and so on. So that is undoubtedly the case. That fact, however, is just a reflection of one country, two systems. Uh, and that Hong Kong obviously used to be effectively run by uh, the British and the common law system grew up. Uh, in that context and the decision 97 to allow um, the common law to continue is the reason why um, Hong Kong continues to allow 
special admission for overseas barristers, British barristers, in, in, in well, from now on, non-NSL cases. And since you're in town for your uh, current case, you're here for lunch, and our lunch has arrived, the Barrow Monday. What did you choose again? I've chosen the confit pork belly with, uh, looks like cabbage and some kind of pea thing. Right. Well, we'll tuck into that, and then we'll get back into the questions after. Sounds good. You're listening to Tripperhead's Talking Tea Podcast with Aaron Bush and Tim Owen. All right, we've finished our lunch, our uh, pork and yes. barramundi. Very tasty. Good work, the Continental. I thought it was very good, actually, yeah. Just for a lunch set, you weren't even doing a la carte. No, I mean, it was a set lunch, and that coffee pork belly was really tasty. Excellent. We'll continue with our interview. We were talking about the fact that Hong Kong has a yes. very special legal system that allows you, as a UK lawyer, to come over here and represent or, de- uh, or, or prosecute yep. if you wanted to. Have you ever given any thought to getting your Hong Kong licence, which seems to be the issue around what we started talking about? Oh, you mean uh, doing the Hong Kong bar exam? I guess. I have given it a lot of thought over the years, but uh, it is quite a, a lot of work uh, if you're going to do it properly and, and pass the exam, because it's not an easy exam to pass. And at my age, the thought of spending a long time studying Hong Kong land law, trust law, equity law, company law, when I'm never going to need to do it in reality, um, is a little difficult. So are you allowed to keep your UK license? Oh, yeah, you, got, you can be called to both bars. You, and there are, there are a number of barristers here who are called to the English bar and who have either been admitted to the Hong Kong bar before you had to do the exam or they've been clever enough to do the exams and pass them and get admitted here. So, yeah. You and I have a couple of things in common. Firstly, yes. exactly what we're doing now, you have your own podcast and I hear you're recording yours not long after this one. What's your podcast about? Okay, so the podcast that I co-host with uh, Ken McDonald, Lord McDonald of River Glaven, um, who Ken is the former Director of Public Prosecutions. He's now a member of the House of Lords. So Ken and I are both barristers at Matrix Chambers. We're very old friends. We've known each other for 40 years. And um, a few years ago, I came up with this idea that I thought we could do a podcast together about law and politics because we're both interested in law and politics. And uh, there's a bit of a gap between the discussion and actually doing it. And we launched the podcast a year ago. It's called Double Jeopardy, the Law and Politics Podcast. Double Jeopardy, you can find it on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, I assume. All the usual places where people listen to podcasts. And I assume that law and politics, you have plenty in the UK to talk about on that subject. It's been a very rich vein of subject matter over the last year. Yeah. Uh, now, the other thing you and I have in common is we're both cricket tragics. We're both recording this. Well, we are recording this podcast on July 12th. Yes. And it's the middle of the 2023 Ashes Tour. Australia won the first. England fought back at Henley to make it 2-1. Yeah. How yeah. do you feel it's going for your lads now, remembering that you are Welsh, so you'll bail out on being English if they lose? Yeah, what I was going to say about my Welshness is that... Um, if I'm asked to choose or someone says, oh, you're English, I say, no, I'm Welsh. But I'm not so narrowly nationalistic that I always want England to lose. And so if Wales are not in the game, uh, which they never are in cricket, um, then I will happily support England and I'll, I'll, I'll follow English fortunes. On that point, I would just like to say that I would love England 
every single time to lose. I don't care who they're playing. Oh, well, that's fair. You're Australian. Mm. But listen, as to the cricket, I mean, God, who on earth could could predict what's going to happen in the next two tests? Uh, each test so far uh, was a cliffhanger. Either side could have won or lost. I mean, I, I, you and I were exchanging messages uh, on Sunday night uh, as uh, at the point where Stokes and Bairstow were out leaving Wood and Wokes at the crease. I thought, that's it. We're, it's all over. We're obviously going to be bowled out. Very pessimistic. I, well, I was pessimistic. I told you that you were going to win and I was correct. Yeah, you were correct. I'm very glad you were correct. And I, I'm, I'm happy. I'm still getting abuse about uh, the decision, uh, the stumping by Kerry on Bairstow. Uh, yes. Apparently that, that, that is the only way Australia won that test and not all the other 19 wickets we got. But anyway, we'll ignore that. That, that. was an embarrassing episode uh, of, uh, of English whinging. Yes, oh, good. I was about Tommy to say, whinges. You're, you're a legal mind. That is a legal dismissal. Totally, totally legal. I mean, you could say, well, it was a little bit sneaky or whatever. But I mean, what was Bairstow doing wandering around? He's going for a wander. Yeah. And he found out. No, no. I'm no oh, sim- good. I'm no glad. Sim- we can continue the podcast. I wouldn't like to have had to uh, get into the fisticuffs there. Uh, now, do we go back to legal or do we go on to more interesting stuff about Hong Kong's most fascinating lawyer? Which one would you like to Aaron, go? You could choose. Uh, I'm in your hands, Aaron. I, as, uh, if I have to no comment, I'll no comment. Well, you've done it twice already, and I assume you will again on both sides of this one. We talked uh, about your current wife earlier. Yes. But you were previously married into a very famous British acting family. Can we talk about that? Yes. Well, you could talk about the fact I was married to Gemma Redgrave um, for many years. We have two sons, and... Um, I have to say, our uh, our separation has been very happy, and all is well, and we all get on very well. I think I read in the research that perhaps one of your sons has gone into acting as well, nationally. No, he yeah, well, he did a bit of acting. My eldest son Gabriel did a bit of acting, uh, well, a lot of acting at school, and at one point, I think he was contemplating uh, going into acting, but uh, fortunately. That's not what he's chosen to do. He's actually a film video editor for Mob Kitchen, which is a uh, a, a very well-known, uh, effectively, a, it's a sort of lifestyle YouTube, Instagram channel, and uh, pumps out lots of really interesting uh, food videos for Gen Z and uh, millennials. No lawyers coming through in the family? No. Although my younger son has just been accepted on the graduate entry scheme by offered by the Home Office to go into the prison service. So he's actually going to spend two years as a graduate entry as a prison officer, which is going to be an interesting... It's not what I ever thought he would do, but it's. I'm very proud of it. On that question, would yeah. you recommend to anyone to become a lawyer? Is it a profession uh, that people should be going into well, in 2023? I think it's, that's always a really difficult question because obviously quite a lot of friends of mine, they have kids who are... Um, contemplating a career or some kind of career and they say what do you think about law become a barrister solicitor whatever and I'm really conflicted about it because obviously I love law I still love law after 40 years of practice I think it's a fascinating uh, discipline I think it gives you an understanding of, of, of politics about how society works and you know it's, it's endlessly varied uh, and interesting but it's also certainly in, in in the UK. 
unbelievably competitive now and difficult to get a job. And in certain areas of law, you earn so little you can't you can't survive. I'm talking about doing legal aid work, criminal legal aid work, human rights work, and that kind of thing. The, the pay is so terrible that basically only the children of the rich can afford to do it. And so it's one of those difficult questions. You don't want to crush someone's hopes and say, "Don't do this thing that you passionately want to do." So what I usually say is, you know, um, be aware that it's very competitive. Decide whether you want to take the risk, and um, you know, if you do, then good luck but you it's a tough road these days it wasn't like that when i became a barrister in the 1980s there was no question that you would get work you'd earn enough to earn a living even work living in london tripper heads talk and tea final question have you ever thought about becoming a judge well aaron i am a judge really i am a part-time judge i'm a deputy high court judge uh in the uk i'm also an acting judge of the Grand Court of the Cayman Islands. So I've been a judge. And before that, I was also a recorder of the Crown Court in England. So I've been a part-time judge. I still am a part-time judge, uh, as I say, in the High Court in England and in Cayman. And the answer, I think then your next question will be, well, do you want to be a full-time judge? Which answer is no, because I really enjoy being a barrister. I like being an advocate. I also enjoy being a judge. Um, but I wouldn't want to do it full time. I like arguing. I like advocacy. And uh, I also like being self-employed. I like being able to run and control my life, which you can't if you're a full time judge because you are you know, you're employed. You're effectively a state, ser- state civil servant. And um, that's not really what I want to do. As of your Wikipedia page, so I'm not outing you. This is public knowledge. You are 65 now. Is that correct? Right? According to Wikipedia, shit, I never knew that, Aaron. Okay, yeah. right. Is it my birthday? I didn't check. <laughs> yeah, I am 65. I was born, for those who want to send me a birthday card, on the January the 11th, 1958. I'll put it in my diary now. Yeah. The question is, you are 65, which yes. in many countries would be retirement age. How long do you want to keep on in the law profession? Uh, I have no t- intention ever of retiring i think god knows what would happen to me if i retired no i'll keep working as long as people want to send me work i mean i think the the great thing about being a barrister because you're self-employed is that there is no retirement age and you're only as good as as the cases you get and so as long as solicitors and clients want to use me i will keep working and the point at which i think the risk for barristers maybe is you know like in all sorts of areas you overstay your welcome and uh there is a sad sight sometimes of very, very old barristers who think they're still as good as they were in their heyday, and in fact they aren't. And no one has told them that. And so obviously the ideal is that you will recognise the point where you need to hang up your wig and go off and do something else. So I'm going to double the last two questions up into the final question. Would you ever consider sitting on the Court of Final Appeal as a foreign judge? <laughs> <laughs> it's never going to happen. So I don't need to consider it. Uh, I mean, if, if if the question was, if I had been a Supreme Court justice, uh, who are the only ones from the UK who, are, who sit on the Court of Final Appeal. So if I had been a Supreme Court justice and I'd retired and I'd been asked to sit on the Court of Final Appeal in Hong Kong, would I do so? Answer is yes, I would. Tim Owen? Thanks for joining. It's a pleasure, Aaron, and thank you for my delicious lunch. 
Triplehead's Talking Tea is written, produced, and published by Aaron Bush for Triplehead Limited. Additional voices by Jade Bush. Copyright 2023.